You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Hello and welcome to another Lozano Smith podcast. I say another, but we have been on a bit of a hiatus as we in the state and the country have dealt with and been managing as best as possible the COVID-19 public health pandemic. Um, This is one in a series of student and special ed related podcasts that we're going to be putting out, which relate directly to issues uh, interacting with students and special education and COVID-19. Part of our our perhaps hesitancy uh, to put put out some podcasts is that uh, just like it's been over the last several weeks, the circumstances have changed quickly. The guidance from state education and public health officials has been changing as quickly as, as the virus spreads. Uh, we have reached a point in time where we think we have a little bit of greater certainty as to what to expect going into the 2021 school year. So today I am your host, Sloan Simmons. I am lucky to be joined by uh, two of the state's best in special education, the Lozano Smith's special education practice group leaders, Marcy Gutierrez and Allie Bivens. We're going to discuss not a large number of issues, but where the current status is as we understand it, of guidance from the state and the feds as it relates to some significant special education issues. This follows uh, guidance issued by the California Department of Public Health last week, Governor Newsom's press conference on Friday, July 17th, and State Superintendent of Public Instruction Tony Thurman's press conference on July 20th. That being said, I'm still long-winded. Hi, Marcy. Hi, Allie. Hey Sloan, how are you? We've got a lot to talk about today as quickly as we can, but things are changing rapidly, as you say. So we're we're meeting together, socially distanced appropriately, but this follows uh, SB 98's passage over recent weeks and then the the new guidance. I look to you two to kind of lay it out there as to what are the most important things coming out of SB 98 and guidance, and perhaps we start with, with the whole emergency plan IEP issue. I think that's a good idea. There's definitely three things that we probably want to emphasize today as being the biggest takeaways from SB 98. You mentioned one of them being the emergency plans, but we also want to look at SB 98's reduction in daily um, educational minutes and then the whole different modes of education, whether it's in-person and distance learning. But I think that you're quite right that we should focus on the emergency plans first. What do you say, Allie? All right, so SB 98, one of the biggest changes in the law that came from SB 98 related to special education is the emergency plan. So what the law says, it actually adds um, a subdivision to Ed Code 56345, and it tells school districts that you have to have an emergency plan in each student's IEP that would go into effect um, in the event that a school site is closed for school closure lasting more than 10 days. And so it enumerates the things that these could possibly be. It's not limited to these things, but mentions fires, floods, earthquakes, and of course, pandemics. And so there's four things that it's indicated in the law that must be included in these emergency plans. And the first thing is most importantly, the special education and related services that that student will receive during the emergency period supplementary aids and services during the emergency period, transition services, and extended school year services. And with regard to extended school year services, it says where appropriate. 
And so that's really the main takeaways that you need to remember for the emergency plan is that it requires those four specific things and it will go into effect when a school closure lasts more than 10 school days. Marcy, were districts doing a version of this prior to SB 98? I would say prior to SB 98 and prior to COVID, it was extremely rare for a district to have an emergency plan. There were, I have been involved in some um, IEPs where a parent specifically requested the district to develop a plan, a contingency for what would happen. Um, For example, if their student was in a wheelchair, what would happen if there was a fire? So sometimes this topic did come up at IEPs, but as far as having a specific emergency plan, it certainly was not a mandatory obligation of the law. This new requirement here in the state of California for including emergency plans in an IEP is not part of the federal law. It's something that we have here specific to California, at least at this point. Um, and again, before before this COVID pandemic, there was no legal obligation to make this a mandatory component of an IEP as it is now. Um, so now every one of our students with an IEP in California uh, is entitled to and districts are needing to work toward putting these emergency plans in place for every one of them? Exactly. So, well, you know, we know that our IEPs already require certain things like present levels, goals, et cetera. And now what is a mandatory requirement here in California is to include a specific written emergency plan that addresses the four points that Ali just said. You know, what some of our clients are asking right now is, is when are we supposed to write these emergency plans, Sloan? Because the difficulty is, With the COVID pandemic that went into effect in March, our clients in school districts and county offices throughout the state were scrambling to put together, you know, IEP paperwork or prior written notices to document what should be done for special needs students as a result of the COVID pandemic and the shelter in place and related orders last school year. So there was a significant amount of paperwork already developed in that regard. The question is, do new emergency plans need to be developed now? It may be possible if some of um, our districts did not develop specific emergency plans, but it may be that some of our districts may have already complied with this requirement to develop emergency plans, depending upon the IEP paperwork that was developed last school year. And so if that if that is the case, the four requirements having been checked due to that paperwork developed in March and April, May, would that mean that there's the potential that they wouldn't need to convene a further IEP meeting whatsoever and could proceed forward with what they have? Or is there still going to be a need, even if we think the paperwork and communications and work with families checks these boxes, that there still should be some degree of an IEP meeting held or consent given, approval given by the parent that what was put in place constitutes an adequate emergency plan? So um, if, for example, the IEP paperwork that was developed last school year was already provided to the parent and already included an emergency plan that meets these uh, these elements, and parent already consented to the emergency plan, then there's no reason you know, perhaps to discuss it. A parent may always request an IEP meeting at any time. And so if a parent, for example, already consented to an IEP that includes an emergency plan from last school year. And for example, if a parent has questions about that plan now, they may ask for an IEP meeting and then the team would be required to have a meeting to discuss the emergency plan. If, however, some of our districts actually, um, some districts that we've seen in the state at least, were not able to develop IEP amendments 
to document the changes in services that took place as a result of COVID-19. So for those districts that were not able to develop IEP paper, we definitely encourage that you either um, develop IEP amendments and propose them to parents now. And if a parent consents, there's no requirement to have a meeting. However, if a parent doesn't consent, you're absolutely required to have a meeting. And there are certainly going to be cases where you may not want to develop an IEP amendment. These are important discussions that may be best had within the context of an IEP meeting. So you really have that multidisciplinary approach to developing the appropriate plan. Now, Allie, I would assume just like the range of other aspects that go into developing a student's IEP, the disagreements over a student's emergency plan are issues which could find them Self leading to due process hearings before OAH? I definitely see that in the future. That's an, uh, something that I'm sure we'll see litigated um, over the next year and potentially years to come. Another thing that I wanted to mention was one way that to potentially to document this emergency plan if you're having an, IE, an annual IEP meeting, for example, for a student, um, and a lot of those meetings are occurring via Zoom right now. Um, or Google Google Hangouts and whatever it may be, that you could document that emergency plan in the IEP notes with clear language saying, this is the emergency plan that will go into effect should a school closure for more than 10 days occur. That's an excellent point. And as we know, paperwork is very important in terms of IEP planning. Our firm, in fact, is developing a model template to be used to document an emergency plan. Right now, we would definitely advise documenting an emergency plan within the IEP notes if you don't have um, a standard form already developed for that. I mean, I could see if this was a requirement pre-COVID-19, there might be a tendency to anticipate a brief closure, right? Like the law calls for 10 days, so like some type of of emergency plan that's intended by its very nature to be something temporary um, and it might impact the way in which you frame up and design that emergency plan but it just seems like you know based on what we know now that school closures and distance learning as we head into the fall is likely not just not going to be just 10 days but months possibly and so is that how does that uniquely impact what might be considered in an emergency plan if we were in, compared to if we were in pre-COVID-19 times and the expected closure would be maybe a week, maybe two, as opposed to where we find ourselves today? Well, I think that's a difficult question to answer. I think that certainly is the question that we need to answer is, you know, we thought that COVID would be more of a temporary um, situation and we are now seeing that it is lasting longer than anticipated. Um, last year, uh, or was it the year before that we were hit with the, the fires up in paradise? Uh, we've had hurricanes, we've had tornadoes. In fact, before the COVID pandemic, the U.S. Department of Education had already issued guidance relative to uh, to one of our hurricanes. I can't remember what name that one was. but So I don't know if it's possible to anticipate an emergency plan the number of days, for example, um, or to be a little more specific, the, the law defines various emergencies, as Ali mentioned, floods. A flood may be very short and this worldwide pandemic is longer. There could be an earthquake. There could be an, a road that becomes impassable. Um, so the amount of days is certainly going to impact the type of emergency plan. But unfortunately, the way that emergencies are, they're unforeseen circumstances. So it may put staff in a very difficult position as far as anticipating um, the number of days that an emergency may last, depending upon what kind of condition it is. Allie, did uh, SB 98 or any of the more recent guidance uh, address instructional minutes in the special education context? 
Yeah, so that's the um, the second biggest impact or one of the other impacts of SB 98 on special education and education in general. What SB 98 did is for the 2020-2021 school year is reduce the instructional minutes and the specific minutes are in the law and vary um, based on grade. But what special education practitioners and IEP teams need to be aware of is because of this change in instructional minutes, whatever's in a student's IEP in terms of minutes may change as well. For example, if a student has a one-to-one aid for a full school day, you might have that the minutes indicated on there, for example, 360 minutes per day, which is obviously not going to apply in this situation where there's reduced instructional minutes. Another thing that could a portion of the IEP that could be impacted by this change in instructional minutes is that percentage of in the, on the ed, we call it the ed setting page of the IEP. So the change in percentage in general education and special education, you're going to have to take a look at if there's a change in any of your um, SAI time, for example, if that's going to change the percentage of time in gen ed versus special the special ed setting. Yeah, I think it's certainly going to be looking at that. So we live and die by minutes in special education. It is a legal requirement that we provide a specific frequency and duration of all special education-related services. So by virtue of SB 98 changing instructional minutes, you know, how long the school day is for all kiddos, it's certainly going to impact the way that we describe the frequency and duration of minutes on every type of special education. Or We certainly want to be taking a closer look at, at how we define those minutes on our IEPs. Now, obviously, an issue we hear about in the news every day, and schools aren't free from it, but but masks. And I know the the guidance from the State Department of Public Health and uh, local departments of public health, the CDE, there's uh, a, a range of information out there on masks, and including information specific to schools and masks. Allie, Marcy, is there anything in particular, at least in terms of issue spotting, the district should be keeping their eye on or, or know that could become an issue when it comes to masks and students um, who have IEPs or, for that matter, but perhaps students with 504 plans in a general way. Well, I certainly can anticipate, uh, you know, parents or, or even staff having questions about whether or not a student is able to wear a mask. Are they required to wear a mask? Is a staff member required to assist a student wearing a mask? And, it, you know, those types of questions and whether or not those questions are appropriate to be discussed through the IEP process. Those are looming questions, I think, at this time that we definitely would need to flesh out. If you find, um, if a school district finds that they are confronted with those questions, it definitely would advise giving their legal counsel a call at this time because things are changing on a day-to-day basis. And there is, Allie, built into some of the guidance on masks. There are exceptions to the California Department of Public Health guidance when it comes to masks, correct? Right. So there, it doesn't necessarily exempt students with special needs, but there is an exception um, to mask wearing for students who are not able to remove the mask on, on their own, which yeah. may apply to some students with IEPs. So it could be a factor. Yeah, like, like so many aspects of what we're looking at in every practice area when it comes to COVID-19, still kind of waiting for that piece to be, to be flushed out. Uh, Allie, Marcy, what about uh, distance learning versus um, the what had been hoped for in terms of, or at least by many parents had hoped for, a return to schools and the brick-and-mortar buildings? Where are we on that issue as it relates to our special ed kiddos? Well, that's a, another good question. I think that we're 
in the same boat as all the other kids are and you know schools and parents and, and kids are struggling with what do we do we know that SB 98 said that in-person education is required to be provided to quote to the greatest extent possible and then we got the guidance from the um, California Department of Public Health and which was reiterated by Governor Newsom on July 17th making it clear that for school districts that are located in counties that are on the watch list, you're not going to be having in-person education if you're not not off the watch list, excuse me, for at least 14 days. So, you know, our, our, our special departments right now are working around the clock to put together plans for what will be put in place for, for kiddos to educate them in a distance learning environment in a matter that meets the, the legal requirements that are set forth in SB 98, which give, gave us some pretty clear directives of what distance learning is or you know needs to include i know that that's going to be addressed in the student podcast but um, right now everyone's asking the same questions you know how how do we provide distance learning to appropriately meet the needs of special ed students so now prior to the most recent guidance and the the tighter restraints on going back in person were districts uh, exploring perhaps a greater degree of in-person learning when it came to their special ed students I can tell you, and I don't know about Ali, a large number of the school districts and, and other entities I was working with were definitely planning to have for school to resume the brick and mortar, you know, having school kids back on um, school campuses for the year. And that was something that we'd already been spending weeks, you know, if not months planning for. And so to, and then when SB 98 was signed into law on June 29th, making it clear that in-person education is required to the greatest extent possible, I think. You know, a lot of our districts were, you know, looking to, to have in-person education. So, you know, much has changed in these last three or four days for us, Sloan, and much may change here in the next couple of days. Right. How about one more kind of just quick hit? And, and I really appreciate you guys highlighting the, the big ticket items um, for special ed in relation to COVID-19 right now. But any update or change in, in kind of the view of compensatory education with respect to COVID-19 or, or what our clients should just be keeping in mind? I haven't seen any new guidance come out for several months in terms of compensatory education. We're still looking at the guidance that came out um, from the U.S. Department of Education and California Department of Education that basically say that the determination of compensatory education should be made on a case-by-case basis. But what I'm seeing in the guidance is that the question has been asked, Will compensatory education be required? And the answer that's come back to, from both the feds and the state is compensatory education may be required. This loan in NLE means that it may not be required. So it's important to look at it on an individualized basis. I think now that we have SB 98 and the fact that our state legislature is saying, hey, look, um, all kids could have been impacted by the, a loss of education created by distance learning. And I think that that language and, and those parts of SB 98 are going to be really relevant to us determining um, what to do if we get a comp ed request. Um, so for school districts out there that are receiving requests for comp ed from parents, or if you have staff um, asking questions, it's definitely um, a gray area right now. We have not yet seen a case here in California. We're seeing cases that are being filed on comp ed, seeking comp ed for distance learning. But as of today, there's not yet been a, a decision in California about whether or not compensatory education is required as a result of any loss of learning associated with, with distance learning caused by COVID-19. Thanks, guys. This is very helpful. Uh, I think this is more of, for our listeners, perhaps more of the format that uh, you will hear from us in the short term, not as lengthy of a podcast as we have perhaps done in the past. 
but to uh, attempt to keep these podcasts going to be as informative as possible as to changes in the law as they pertain to COVID-19 and students. I would recommend uh, to, to all districts and county offices of ed, staff and administration to visit Lozano Smith's COVID-19 webpage where there are links to all the resources from state and federal agencies uh, of all, all shapes and sizes as it relates to COVID-19. We would also say stay tuned to our podcast because, heck, by two weeks from now, the, the Department of Public Health and the CDE may have further new or different guidance. And for that matter, the legislature may jump in and throw another law or two at us as well as, as this, this circumstances uh, change uh, on, on seemingly a daily basis. So, Allie, Marcy, thanks for being here. Thank you both. And thank you everyone for listening. Uh, to our listeners, stay safe. And um, if you don't want to miss any of Lozano Smith's podcasts, you can access that at Smith forward slash podcast.com and check out our website in the COVID-19 resource page, which has all Lozano Smith's client news briefs as they pertain to COVID-19. Thanks everyone. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.